Hi, everybody. It's Father Tony here. I'm joined by my co-host, Jonathan Stewart. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Father Tony. Hello, Chelmsford. Hello, <laughs> YouTube. Uh, hello, Chelsford, podcast catchers. Chelmsford loves it when you say hello to it. It's 8, 8.30, 8.30 Sunday evenings. Tune in. <laughs> it might even Sunday. be 8.30 Sunday evening. I don't, even, I don't actually know. Um, anyway, that's not what we came here to talk about. We came here to talk about the Manichaeans. So yes. let's do that. Um, to help us talk about the Manichaeans, as you may have noticed from our video show that got posted just recently, Dr. Timothy Pettipis from the University of Ottawa. Hello, Dr. Timothy. Hello. And uh, thank you once again for agreeing to appear on our show. We really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. And we had a great talk in our video portion about kind of who the Manichaeans were and who Manny was and, and all of that interesting stuff. But uh, let's get past some of that uh, basic level stuff and get into some more interesting details. Um, sure. So can you sum up for us the Manichaean creation story? Certainly. I mean, it, it's fairly complicated, so I'll try <laughs> and give the, the Cole's Notes uh, version. All right. Um, but e even in antiquity, uh, it was sort of simplified as the teaching of the two principles and the three times. Um, the two principles being the, the pre-existing cosmic essences uh, of light and darkness. Uh, and as I explained uh, in the video portion, these, this is a very materialistic idea of two substances um who exist eternally so there's no first principle there's literally two first principles um and during the so-called first time or the first period of cosmic history or really pre-cosmic history these these two principles the light and darkness exist completely separately uh, it's as though they don't even know of each other's existence and then at some point, the dark powers uh, who exist in this realm of chaos, they, they perceive the, the kingdom of light and decide they're going to invade it. So this upsets the, the pre-cosmic balance of, of the separate powers. But once the ruler of light, the, the, the father of greatness, as he's called, um, he, he's a totally passive figure. Um, so when he perceives this invasion of the dark powers, uh, uh, he can't do anything himself. So he has to send his son, uh, who's called the first man uh, in, in the myth. Uh, he sends him as an emissary who is meant to be captured and devoured uh, by the, the powers of darkness. Um, and this seems like a defeat, but it's really a ruse or, or a trap uh, for the dark powers. It's a way for the light to bind itself uh, to the invading darkness. Um, so this sets in motion the second time or the second uh, period of cosmic history, which involves the, the mixture of light and darkness. Um, and the powers of light... Uh, Additional powers are sent from the Father to, to slay the, the dark forces and really build the cosmos. Uh, and the cosmos serves as this uh, light purification machine 
that involves the sun and moon and, and the Milky Way is, uh, as this conduit for uh, liberated light particles. Um, but in response, the dark powers, they, they want to permanently imprison uh, light in the darkness, so they, they engineer Adam and Eve, so the first human beings are created very much in the way that you see in something like the secret book of john or the or the sethian uh creation story mm -hmm. so the light is seen as really equivalent to the soul and that gets imprisoned in in dark matter uh, and human beings uh forget that they have this luminous essence within themselves so they need to be reminded uh by a celestial messenger they need to be given the the gift of, of gnosis. Um, so various messengers are sent to humanity, often symbolized by Jesus, but it can be other figures as well. Uh, and the messenger uh, delivers this saving knowledge and, and awakens in humanity what Manichaeans call the light mind, uh, or you might say the enlightened mind, uh, in which they remember their uh, the origin of their, their true essence in the celestial realm. Uh, and through this, um, they participate uh, in the liberation of, of light particles through various dietary uh, rituals. Uh, and this is meant to go on and on and on until a sufficient amount of light uh, is liberated that the universe basically collapses in on itself and and the two principles are permanently separated uh, at the end of time that's very interesting so like the the foods that they would be eating would contain these light particles so in, in a sense everything contains the light particles and through this uh, through the the works of the manichaeans themselves they would liberate them is that is that what that kind of is Yes, exactly. But it was only certain uh, types of food, especially fruits and vegetables. They were seen as particularly concentrated with light particles. Uh, so Manichaeans were strict vegetarians. Um, something like meat had a lot of darkness in it, so that was uh, to be avoided. Hmm. Um, but they had, I mean, it's also important to note that the Manichaean church is a two-tiered organization where you have the so-called elect uh, who are basically like ascetic uh, monastic type individuals who've renounced procreation and, and uh, life in the world and, and they engage in these ritual meals that are provided for them by the lay people or the catechumens mm. of the movement. Very much like the Cathars, that's very interesting. I'm, yeah, well, I that, wonder that, if that's, that's where they that's got a, it parallel that's that's often suggested mm -hmm. um dr patapis the uh the manichaeans in many ways are the or are the we see if you agree with me or or from my understanding are really the arch heresy in the imagination of the west um <laughs> yes like it, it yeah uh probably because uh the for people who don't know it there saint augustine uh who still has whose theology is still massively influential on modern Christianity was, was a Manichaean before he converted. 
Right. Um, and of course, he he writes he writes about it. But it you do. Um, I, I guess my question is: the after almost two thousand years or seventeen hundred years of 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 it being the arch heresy in the West, does that does that still have an impact about how we think about the Manichaeans? And it, does it even have an impact on scholarship? Does does it being the arch heresy kind of twist the way that we examine the Manichaeans and their texts? Oh, ab- absolutely! It's 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 remarkable how how persistent these uh, stereotypes are, and um, I think that's one of the reasons that there's been, you know, relatively little interest uh, in Manichaeans or, or Manichaean literature because they are, you know, so or they were so so universally despised. Um, by all kinds of different uh, religious groups. Um, and even professionally, I've had people, other scholars and academics say to me, well, why would you study this, you know, heretical material? Mm. Like, uh, and, and there's a presumption that you're hostile to Christianity if, if you have an interest in yeah. uh, in this so-called heresy. So that that stereotype uh, absolutely persists. We've heard Gnostic scholars say the same thing too. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's too bad, Um, because all of this stuff is very, not only interesting, (laughs) but I mean, it's it's informative to Christianity as a whole. But you don't have to convince me. I keep keep coming in to say I agree instead of letting you talk. (laughs) Hey, let me interrupt you. Stop (laughs) agreeing. No, it's true though. this um, this material, and even when you're talking about uh, the light mixing with the darkness, uh, so many other uh, both canonical and extra canonical sources come to my mind when you say that. You know, the, yes. the prologue to the Gospel of John, you know, the light shines in the darkness. I mean, right, uh, right. that's kind of exactly what we're talking about here. So it's it, very interesting to see how all of these traditions connect together. And uh, speaking of how these uh, religious traditions connect to each other. Can you talk a little bit about um, the connection between Manichaeanism and uh, stuff like Zoroastrianism or Buddhism and Christianity specifically also? Yes. Uh, I mean, this is one of the most uh, debated questions in the history of uh, Manichaean scholarship. Uh, and now it's sort of caught up with a a more recent debate about what is religion, um, that this is something that's uh, more and more being discussed, uh, the concept of religion. But when the first uh, original Manichaean texts were discovered uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, they were found in Western China at an oasis called the Turfan Oasis. Uh, and all of these fragments were written in various Iranian dialects. Um, So it was assumed that Manichaeism must be some kind of uh, Zoroastrian heresy Hmm. that was then later Christianized. Um, But these texts uh, from Turfan are relatively late. I mean, they're early medieval texts from the 9th and 10th century, and they reflect uh, a later stage of, of Manichaean missionary uh, history. Um, then in 1929, 
much earlier texts were found in Egypt, the, the so-called Medinat Mahdi uh, Coptic manuscripts. And in these texts, the, the Christian elements seem very much at the forefront. Uh, and it's been increasingly accepted that really um, the foundation of, of Mani's system is, is in a kind of Christianity. So for instance, uh, in some of Manny's letters that we've discovered, he refers to himself as the apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, he was said to be the representation of the paraclete uh, promised by Jesus in the Gospel of John. The, even the creation myth itself is based in, on a kind of uh, Trinitarian theology when you look at the various uh, figures that get uh, described in the celestial realm. And, and the whole idea of the father sacrificing his son uh, to, the to the powers of darkness, that's really a reproduction of the, mm -hmm. of the central uh, Christian image. So all of these things suggest that, um, at least in Manny's mind, he was firmly rooted in a, in a type of Christianity, uh, a very particular type uh, embedded in, in Persian soil. But I think it's safe to say that it evolves, his movement evolves into its own distinct uh, religion that increasingly accommodates itself to other traditions that it encounters. Hmm. Speaking of, um, the, there's a question in here that I assume that Jonathan put in here because I don't recognize it, but um, he asks if the, uh, if the Christian terms and symbols uh, used in, say, Eastern Manichaean territories and uh, Buddhist and Taoist terms and symbols in, in the uh, no, I got that wrong. In the geography is hard. You know what I mean. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, is it uh, is it very adaptable in that way? Is it is it something that you can use symbols from one culture to make it understandable to them, and a different symbols from a different culture? Uh, absolutely, it seems to have been designed th that way, uh, and, and to have been part of their uh, missionary program was to use local languages and, and religious vocabulary. I mean, if if all previous messengers are were really giving the same message, mm -hmm. uh, then it's easy to make these sorts of substitutions. And even Manny himself, uh, one of his writings was addressed in Persian to the Persian king, and he borrowed various uh, Zoroastrian terms to translate uh, some of his Christian ideas. Um, so it really essentially his movement is, a, as I've said, is a universal religion that's not tied to any specific language or culture. Like, for instance, Islam uh, is very much tied to the Arabic language and, and to Arabic culture. Mm -hmm. um, Manichaeism is very much, uh, you know, looking internationally and cross-cultural. So that's why in the West, he's referred to as the Apostle of Jesus Christ. But in the East, uh, Manny is referred to as the Buddha of Light. Mm. Uh, it's the same figure, part of the same movement. And that's really unprecedented, I think, in uh, the history of, of world religions. Sure, yeah.
Yeah. I, I know reading um, some, some of the hymns and texts and translation, uh, just uh, something like uh, Marvin Myers, uh, the Gnostic Bible, right? It has a bunch of Manichaean stuff that's kind of taken from a bunch of different sources. Mm-hmm. And it's, right. it's very shocking to modern eyes because you'll have one hymn that's, you know, about Jesus, heaven, scriptures, and then the next one will be Buddha, Dharma, uh, Nirvana. Yeah. It's very right. jarring and very uh, very interesting to, to modernize uh, when you have that contrast. Um, and, I, and I've read that, that, that yeah, later, later Manichaeanism in China was accepted as, as one of the schools of Buddhism, and there's even still a, a few dusty shrines that have, uh, that have Manny on mm-hmm. the walls. Of, yeah, exactly. Kind of, exactly. Kind of forgotten that it was that it's Manny. <laughs> right. People are like, right. that's that's the Buddha. Wasn't yeah. one just discovered recently? Uh, I believe so. I think I remember seeing something in the news about that. But well, there's there's every every so often there's some new piece of evidence for the survival of Manichaeans in in uh, in China. So mm-hmm. that's that's a particularly interesting area of research. Oh, wow, that's really interesting. So, like, surviving to this day in some kind of unbroken sect? Well, there's some evidence that maybe there were Manichaean families into the 19th century, even oh. even 20th century. Uh, whether they knew they were Manichaeans may be another question, uh, but they were, you know, occupying what was once a Manichaean shrine with a with a Buddha who was interpreted as Manny, it's that that's something that's that needs to be studied further. Mm. Yeah, talking about uh, the newspaper, I, I I guess I'm coming back to Manichaeanism's uh, bad reputation. <laughs> but I just the the other day I was reading the paper, and of course I saw that the phrase Manichaean, uh, where in its in its modern usage, right? It was, I'm, you know, I'm a little I'm a little bit shocked that you were reading a paper, but that's yeah yeah I know who does that? <laughs> What's a paper? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I was in the doctor's waiting room. So, <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I was, uh, I was reading the newspaper, but uh, but but it is funny because it, that that is that is a term meaning you know a strict division between light and dark that is still in proper English and that you could occasionally see, perhaps pretentiously used mm. in modern newspapers. Um, so uh, that, that was kind of my right? segue in, into asking about uh. uh but, Medina, sorry, sorry. What was the name of, of the of the find in um in uh in Egypt? The Medinet Mahdi. Yeah, and 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 I know that like you know people weren't out out you know consuming uh, tons and tons uh, of obscure heretical heretical literature, but but the Dead Sea Scrolls and the 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 Nag Hammadi libraries they did have a big impact on society, right? They pop up in Dan Brown novels or <laughs> something like a. Elaine Pagel's yes. Gnostic Gospels. That was a bestseller. It was on the New York uh, the Times bestselling uh, bestseller list. But uh, right, why why don't we have the kind of same reaction to uh, to this find? Well, I, I think it's a pretty simple explanation, um, and and it's the fact that the, these Manichaean texts have no direct or perceived direct connection to Jesus or the Bible. Wow. Um, like the Dead Sea Scrolls can be related to the Hebrew Bible and, and tell us about Second Temple Judaism, uh, the, the period uh, in which Christianity first emerged, and even the Nag Hammadi text, if people have heard of them at all, it's usually in relation to the Gospel of Thomas, 
they usually can't name uh, any of the other texts or aren't interested in any of the other texts. Uh, and if they are, it's only what is their relationship uh, to the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So anytime there's a new sort of textual discovery, people immediately want to know, well, what does it have to do with Jesus? You know, what does it say about the um, canonical tradition? You know, this, this e even in the academic study of religion, there's still this dominant paradigm of the biblical canon as as the most important and most relevant thing. And if you can't uh, relate what you're doing to that paradigm, then it's seen as 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 unworthy or it's as I think the Manichaeans are intrinsically interesting as a late antique religious movement. I don't feel like, uh, you know, what they say about Jesus is really irrelevant to the historian's perspective. Uh, they happen to say a lot about Jesus, but um, like you said, there's such uh, this overwhelming stigma uh, attached to the very idea of uh, Manichaean that it's uh, that plays into it as well. Yeah, that's very interesting, uh, <coughs> uh, particularly about the way that you mentioned that people don't make that direct connection between the Manichaeans and the Bible and, and, and Jesus specifically. It's, uh, is it because, um, because it came later and people just kind of automatically assume that anything that came later is, you know, inauthentic well i think uh and i mean i'm increasingly convinced of this is that part of this canonical bias i mean it really reflects uh, a sort of protestant understanding of christianity as mm. as you know solely connected to the biblical text anything from the so-called tradition is is a later uh, an irrelevant uh, development and is a is a kind of Catholic deviation. Hmm. Um, so the but the fact that uh, someone like Augustine defined his whole theological agenda in response to Manichaeans, and that theological agenda has influenced deeply both Protestants and Catholics, uh, makes it immediately relevant. Uh, it's just not. You know, I, it, there's a it's a complex set of I think very deep uh, assumptions that or misassumptions that that people make about what's really you know representative of of Christianity or or what is people are always looking for the the origin or the essence when you know what's what is equally interesting is the development and that's what interests me. It's it's funny. Well, we won't go into it because uh, it's uh, it's one tangent we probably don't have time for. But but you did hit on one of my my particular bugaboos, which is this subconscious Protestant bias in uh, in secular biblical uh, studies um, mm. and related Absolutely. fields. And and every day, just as you said, you you said you're coming to be aware. It's like oh, it's almost like every day when I encounter this, it, I I just see more and more of this. And again, mostly subconscious bias. It's it's amazing. But uh, I'm going to ask, uh, this, this is what they call in journalism a leading question, uh, Dr. <laughs> Pettipiece, and, and I think yes. Father Tony will probably take over from me. But the, uh, the Nag Hammadi libraries, they, they reflect earlier traditions, Cephians and Valentinians from the, from 
what the mid the mid second century before Manny, right? So there there yes. can't be any Manichaean influence on on anything in the Nag Hammadi library. That's a good leading question, Jonathan. Is that yes. <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, I think it's the relationship between the Nag Hammadi uh, writings and and the the Coptic Manichaean texts is pretty interesting, and it's on multiple levels. Um, I think some of the traditions found in certain Nakamadi texts uh, probably influenced uh, Manichaean ideas, uh, you know, elements of the Sethian uh, cosmogony and, and that sort of thing. Uh, we know that Manichaeans had a preference for the Gospel of Thomas, uh, some imagery in the paraphrase of Shem uh, seems to contribute or, or be a kind of step towards uh, Manichaean theology. So certainly there's influence from Nakamadi traditions uh, or traditions we find at Nakamadi, I should say, on the formation of, of Manichaeism. Um, but at the same time, the Nakamadi texts themselves, the manuscripts, which are probably fourth or fifth century, were produced in pretty much the same scribal environment uh, as the Coptic Manichaean texts. So I personally think uh, there are, there's evidence of Manichaean editing uh, of some of the Nag Hammadi writings, particularly the Secret Book of John. And other people have proposed uh, interpolations, Manichaean interpolations or insertions into other texts. Uh, so I think that is a plausible scenario but and but thirdly you seem to have anti-manichaean passages in some nakamadi writings mm -hmm. uh, so we we seem to have uh, theological debates um playing out through the copying of of these non-canonical texts in a very interesting way hmm. uh so you wrote a paper um or, and you're in the process of uh, editing, I believe, not quite finished with it, if I'm not mistaken, um, about... It should come out next year. Oh, fantastic. All right. But uh, so it's about these uh, Manichaean influences in, in the Secret Book of John. Um, yes. And you were kind enough to send us a copy of it. And, uh, and I, I was very interested to see um, some things that I had never really considered before, uh, differences between the short and long versions of uh, the Secret Book of John. Of course... Um, the Secret Book of John is the, the text that we have the most copies of, pretty much, from the, right. from the, the uh, Gnostic scriptures. There are four versions that we have, two of them short and two of them long. And, um, and you've made some pretty interesting arguments that some of the uh, additional glosses in the long version um, have some pretty specific Manichaean uh, influence. Can you uh, highlight a couple of examples for us? Sure. Um, I mean, it's... I think it's interesting that rarely do people pay attention to the fact that you have the, the multiple versions uh, and, and the long and short versions. Most translations are either only of the long version or, or a sort of amalgam of, mm -hmm. of the two versions. And you wouldn't even know that there are these significantly different I find um, that very frustrating, by the way, because there's a lot of very significant differences that change. <laughs> yeah, big parts yeah. of the text that you know they they just kind of like ah forget that. <laughs> right. 
So in an early uh, passage in the long version of the secret book of John, there's, uh, there's a reference to the first man, uh, which is, of course, uh, for someone like me, immediately is reminiscent of this key figure in, in the Manichaean uh, cosmology. And this first man is then associated in the secret book of John with five powers or a pentad uh, of powers, which is exactly what we have in uh, Manichaean thinking. I mean, each of the, like the light and the darkness, I describe them as, as substances, but they're really a set of substances. Each, each element consists of five uh, components. Mm -hmm. um, and the, and the use of the number five is is very characteristically uh, Manichaean, uh, and this particular passage, um, to my eyes, really interrupts the the flow of of the cosmogony in the secret book of John, mm -hmm. uh, where numerically you have this movement from a singularity to a to a duality, and then there's three powers, and later four powers. Um, but before you get from three to four, you suddenly have this this five part series, which doesn't really uh, make sense to me. Mm -hmm. uh, so that I think is one key example of I think what is plausibly Manichaean uh, editorial activity. Sure. Yeah, and uh, some interesting interesting points about uh, light and darkness also that that gets mixed in there that I'll, I'll let uh, I'll let our viewers wait until the paper is published to <laughs> find sure. out some of that but um, yeah it definitely made me uh, look at the text in, in a new way and and uh, I'm looking forward to learning more about it I'm, that makes me happy <laughs> and is, is this kind of a controversial or is this a new paradigm that there's there's Manichaean redactions of these texts or is this something that, that can be found in, you know, is it, a, is, it, is it in a lot of scholarly literature? Uh, no, <laughs> it, it's, <laughs> it's a fairly, I think, bold uh, assertion. Uh, and it could be entirely uh, wrong, although I, I do think there's compelling evidence for this. But increasingly, scholars are thankfully paying more attention uh, to studying the texts in their sort of final form as we have received them in, in their fourth or fifth century versions. Mm -hmm. uh, previous generations have simply tried to dismember the texts and look for earlier traditions and get down to the original uh, versions or what have you, but people are now paying a lot of attention to the, you know, what was the context in which these manuscripts were produced uh, are they connected to the Pacomian monastery that was uh, in the vicinity? Um, so I think that's a more holistic uh, understanding of how these texts were used and read and why they were copied uh, in the late antique Egyptian environment instead of just looking of, for reflections of second century Christianity or, or even earlier. Mm-hmm. And I think the Manichaean element fits into that uh, later contextual picture very much. Sure. Yeah, none of these things existed in a vacuum, and everybody's talking to everybody else, and influences yeah, exactly. go both ways. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so you're so you're saying a lot of the time in earlier scholarship they're they're trying to figure out the situation of two hundred years before these documents are coming out. Uh, I mean the, the the versions that we have because if they're from the fourth or fifth century, but they're originally from the first or second century. Um, but now scholarship is moving more towards seeing them, you know, surrounded in that fourth or fifth century context. Is that right? Yes. I mean, for a long time, the assumption was, you know, earlier is better. So if yes. you could, and, and, and it's usually assumed that most of the Nag Hammadi writings, their original versions, you know, are probably in the second century. That's the kind of catch-all uh, <laughs> period. Even if some of them were composed later, possibly, we, we have no idea. Um, but I think for for much of the history of scholarship on Nakamari texts, the the sort of immediate context is was usually ignored, uh, and but it's all part of this this same paradigm and obsession with what's earlier and 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 what's seen as more authentic, more closely related to the canonical texts, um, but. Thankfully, I, 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 I at least perceive a, a shift in a, in a different direction. Yeah, it's very similar to the, um, the, the Gospel of Jesus' wife fragments that uh, you know, Karen King had, had brought to the world's attention. That, um, and, and she was very clear, you know, we're not talking about something that is factually accurate. We're talking about something that a group of people at one point believed. And yes. a group of people at one point much later than the story that they're writing. Um, and people want to dismiss that as, oh, well, it's who cares then? But, I, you know, the story itself of those people and what those people were doing, I think, is interesting on its own face. And exactly. I, I agree completely. Um, and that's what got lost in the whole controversy yeah. is um, she never did say the... <laughs> that this means that Jesus had a wife. Yeah. yeah. It just means somebody may have believed that, and that in itself tells us something about early Christians. Mm -hmm. But what the public wants to hear is, was he married or not? <laughs> you know, that's the the tweetable sort of yeah. soundbite that, that people are looking for. <laughs> Kids these days. This is, yeah. this is why we can't have nice things. That's right. <laughs> Oh, uh, anyway, uh, yeah, so um, let's move on a little bit. Uh, so we, we talked a little bit about uh, the size of the Manichaean movement uh, in the video show, but, um, uh, but I don't think that we really did it justice. Can you talk a little bit about the scale of uh, Manichaeanism uh, kind of at its height? Yes, I mean, I, I think uh, it's easy to to have a false perception of 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 its extent i mean you could you could plot on a map all the different places that we have evidence of uh of manichaeans and that would cover uh large parts of europe and asia mm -hmm. but they never existed simultaneously um, you know this is this is a movement that's migrating uh over a thousand years uh so you have to think uh in a sort of period-specific uh, context. Um, now, I think it probably, 
died out fairly quickly in, in the Roman world. Um, at least by the fifth and sixth century, there's there's fewer and fewer uh, signs of of Manichaeans, um, and the theology of the Manichaeans almost became a kind of sort of academic exercise. You know, you could uh, some of the polemics we have against Manichaeans from the later period uh, just seem to be an exercise in refutation. It doesn't mean that. Um, there are actually Manichaeans uh, in in the Roman or Mediterranean environment, mm. uh, and often people in later periods, uh, and especially in the early Middle Ages, will get accused of being Manichaeans for a whole host of <laughs> heretical <laughs> opinions that have nothing necessarily to do with uh, actual uh, Manichaeans themselves. Now, where have we seen uh, that before? <laughs> right, exactly. But there, the movement lasts far longer in, in the Iranian and then the Islamic worlds uh, into the Middle Ages. And and it even sort of flourishes for a time in Central Asia where it was carried by merchants along the Silk Road and even became the sort of official religion of, of the Uyghur people in the 8th century. This is a Turkic a group of Turkish tribes in Central Asia who actually adopted uh, Manichaeism as their official religion for a short time. Uh, and then, of course, as we mentioned, there's ample evidence of Manichaean activity in China. Um, and, you know, supposedly Marco Polo encountered Manichaeans in the 13th century. So that's kind of the last verifiable uh, reference of uh, actual Manichaeans in the historical record. Now, whether or not some of these medieval heresies are are directly connected uh, to the Manichaeans, like the Cathars or the Bogomils or whatever, that's still um, that's still a problem that's not solved, uh, to my knowledge. Mm -hmm. Still, a thousand years. That's not too bad for. Uh... That's a pretty good run. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's something which it also makes it significant. I mean, a, uh, a world religion that lasted that long, I mean, most religions could only hope to be that successful. What are, I mean, I can think of some, some influences that Manichaeanism has had up until the modern day. We, we already kind of discussed Augustine, and, and it's still sort of haunting us, but... Um, you mentioned the Islamic world. Was it an influence on, on Islam at all? Because I, I think about, uh, back to the video show, you, you talked about how um, Manny is kind of taking the, these earlier religious figures as, uh, as prophets, but they, their message wasn't delivered quite right. And that's, right. Uh, that pops up in Islam, right? Muhammad mm -hmm. uh, adopts a variety of, of different previous prophets, but says that, you know, they were true prophets, but they're... Uh, message was was garbled, and uh, Muhammad also said that he was the the final the final prophet, and he's uh, associated with the Paraclete. Right, right. Yeah, I mean there are, there are some some very remarkable uh, parallels between uh, Manichaean ideas, especially in terms of prophetology uh, and what we see in early Islam, um, and some people have suggested that. 
Manichaeism is sort of the missing link between uh, Judeo-Christian tradition and, and what comes to be Islam. Um, but there again, you have all kinds of embedded biases of, of uh, the sort of traditional understanding is Islam kind of comes to existence in a, vac a, a sort of cultural vacuum and isn't subjected to outside influences, uh, which is historically ridiculous. <laughs> Um, and thankfully, scholars are now sort of having the, the courage to, to look at early Islam in, in a more historical, critical fashion. Uh, so I think it needs to be acknowledged that, yes, you've, you know, long before Muhammad, you have this person who is calling themselves the seal of the prophets. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a number of... Uh, very compelling connections that that could and should be made. Um, I guess I have a, a two-part question that's a uh, sort of personal, but not you know. Feel free to answer it uh, if you if you see if it, uh, or not answer it if you're not comfortable. But two two-part question: One, do you, do you enjoy reading the Manichaean text? Because when I've read some of them in translation, uh, particularly some of the hymns, I, I find them rather beautiful. And then two, I guess the second part is, is what kind of drew you to, to study the Manichaeans? Because as we talked about, it's not a huge uh, uh, um, draw for a lot of scholars, I guess. Yeah, no, those are, those are important questions. Um, and I, I agree. I mean, that's one of the things that initially struck me uh, when I first investigated uh, Manichaean literature is is the literary quality of, of the writings you know the the hymns and and, and psalms are, are they are remarkably beautiful and poetic so they there again they have a kind of uh, intrinsic value but um, in terms of how I ended up uh, studying them and, and devoting my sort of professional academic life uh, it's very much tied into my own story of um, my, my relationship to my own religious upbringing, uh, which was in a fairly traditional Christian uh, context. Uh, and then when I went away to university, like many people, I felt the need to rebel against that mm -hmm. uh, religious heritage uh, and began uh, investigating um, you know, other religious traditions and, and began studying the pre-Christian classical world. Uh, but I ironically discovered through these studies um, just how fascinating and interesting uh, early Christianity was and, and things like the Nag Hammadi literature uh, really uh, caught my attention. Um, but simultaneously, I was I was becoming quite interested in Buddhism, and and that was also uh, something I was thinking of pursuing. But it wasn't until I actually had to read for a, a course uh, Augustine's Confessions, um, and and did a paper on uh, his relationship to the Manichaeans, uh, that I first realized that here is a, a religious movement that you know, combines elements of Christianity and, and Buddhism 
it, it is attested in multiple languages and, and contexts. It sort of combined everything I was interested in in one package. Uh, so that has sort of sustained my uh, fascination as, as the years have gone by. Uh, and I think it also speaks, it's so unique in so many ways. It challenges our notion of, of what religion can be. Uh, we're accustomed to thinking of religious traditions as very separate and siloed and, and one cannot cross-fertilize with another. Well, that was completely um, rejected by, by Manny and his followers. They were drawing on multiple uh, religious resources and creatively combining uh, traditions, and I, and I think that's really fascinating. Wow, yeah. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Yeah, um... Anything else you'd like to uh, mention about the Manichaeans? Anything that we haven't covered that you think is interesting? Well, I guess I, I could only uh, make an appeal for, for people to, uh, you know, take an interest in them. Uh, there was a kind of resurgence of, of academic interest in Manichaean studies in the last 15 or 20 years. and. A lot of publications came out in the early 2000s uh, and new material is being discovered all the time, mm -hmm. uh, especially in, in Egypt. Um, but that momentum is, is sort of waning and, and even some of the texts that were discovered a hundred years ago haven't even been edited or, or translated. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I find that very frustrating because um, you know, every year there's dozens of, of dissertations and books on, you know, the Gospel of Mark or, or Paul or, mm. or whatever. And, and lots of the apocryphal and non-canonical literature just languishes uh, in obscurity. So um, in terms of, you know, delving into new uh, directions and opening up new fields and... Um, I think there's something particularly relevant about Manichaeans in, in the current kind of pluralistic religious environment. So I think they, they deserve uh, to have their place in, in the religious history of, of, of our planet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's, uh, let's give Mark a rest. We've had 2,000 years to talk about it. We've pretty much covered it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, let's, let's move on to some of the other things now. I agree. I, I think that'd be that'd be great for the world to have more knowledge about these things that um, you know maybe maybe spread some people's horizons a little bit. Uh, yeah, I can, we can hope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right then. Uh, that seems like a pretty good place to wrap up, and uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show and, and helping us out with the Manichaeans. Uh, I know I've learned an awful lot from uh, oh, from our conversation. Me too. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Fantastic. So um, just uh, want to mention again that you can find Dr. Timothy Petipis's work on academia.edu. Uh, we will link that in the description of the, uh, of the podcast here, and you can check that out. And uh, go check out the video portion if you haven't already, because we talked about some books and things that you can look at if you are new to Manichaeanism and you want to find out some more. So, uh, so that ought to do it. So, yeah, thanks again for, for appearing on the show. We really appreciate it. 
No, it was a great experience. Good, yeah. Good questions. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, thank Jonathan for that. He, he, does a great, uh, he does great work on the prep for the show. So, uh, no, it, it, it was a, a very interesting discussion. Yep, okay. I, I think so too. All righty then, so uh, if we, I, I don't think we have any other news, so I think that'll do it for us. Um, if you have not yet signed up to attend the Joannite Conclave, May 12th through the 17th of this year, because it's now 2016, uh, please go to joanite.org slash conclave2016. Uh, you can meet Jonathan and I and hear from a lot of interesting speakers, including uh, Dr. Karen King, who we mentioned earlier in this show. Uh, she will be in attendance. It's in uh, Salem slash Peabody, Massachusetts. Um, you get to visit a very interesting part of New England where none of the town names are pronounced the way they're spelled. So you get to look forward to that. Uh, and, uh, and that's great. So, um, so please do attend if you want to hang out with a bunch of cool Gnostics. And for those of you who are listening along at home, we will see you next week. Goodbye. This has been a production of the Gnostic Wisdom Network. For more information about this and all of GWN's programming, please visit GnosticWisdom.net. The opinions expressed in this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions of GWN, the Apostolic Joannite Church, or any other organization. This has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 4.0 International License and is brought to you by the generous support of our patrons. To support our programs and become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash gnostic. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash G-N-O-S-T-I-C.